Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live has worked in Bangladesh and throughout most of South America, Mexico, uh, in, the, in the field, and he uh, is now returned in uh, Boston uh, in 1996 to join Oxfam America as its president, and as such, he leads this uh, billion-dollar organization, an affiliate of Oxfam International, in dealing with various issues around the world pertaining to famine, clothing, shelter, and will you please welcome Ray Offenheiser to West Coast Live. Thanks for, uh, for stopping by on your, on your various world tours. Good to be here. The Bay Area is always a great place to, to visit. You, uh, you say that uh, there's enough food in the world to feed everybody? Nine billion people? Well, we're only seven. We'll be nine by 2050. Yeah, but we're planning ahead, right? That, exactly right. Hey, hey, hey. Well, I think one of, the cha- I mean, one of the challenges at Oxfam that we've um, put for ourselves is actually to try to put that, that nine billion by 2050 as a, as a marker for all of us to be focused on. Because um, one of the things we've been looking at and projecting forward is the fact that if we are going to feed nine billion by 2050, we're going to have to increase agricultural productivity by something like 70 percent. And that's 70 percent, 70 percent. And there's a real debate about just even from a biological point of view, how we're going to do that, how we're going to increase the, just the capacity of plants to do that. But we're also doing it at a time when we're taking we're seeing rapid urbanization. We're seeing also by 2050. It's, I think it may be interesting to know that 75 percent of the world's population is going to be living in cities. And most of the cities were you know, developed in areas that are rich agricultural land. So we're taking a million hectares of land out of production every year at a time when we've got to increase production by 70%. And so we've really got to be conscious of the limits that we're banging up against now as we're trying to sort of reach that target. And, uh, and what about also people who would work those farms well, if, if people are moving into the cities too? Well, I think this is one of the big debates in the whole discussion about how we're going to achieve that goal and who's going to actually produce that food. Presently, 75% or almost 80% of the people who actually produce the food around the world live on small farms. And one of the paradoxes is that that segment, that 75 80%, is not the segment of the farm population that's actually gotten the investment in, in science and uh, technology that they really merit. And they've been, in many ways, they possess incredible knowledge about uh, ecology and about agricultural production, but the science community has been concentrated in the large firms and the large universities, and they've been servicing an agro-industrial model rather than you know, the small farm backbone of the global food supply. Also, one of the issues that comes up is that different countries and different people want to grow different kinds of crops that sometimes other people don't necessarily want to have or have decided are not good for you. For instance, sugarcane or uh, tobacco, um, in some cases corn. And yet this becomes a cash cross, a cash crop that, that keeps an economy of local people uh, going. I mean, how do, you, how do you see the balance of this working out? Well, it's interesting that, you know, if we actually look at what people eat in the world, um, there's 247 major crops that actually people are eating around the world that are sort of really, really important for the global diet. But actually, most of the research and emphasis is on really only five major grain staples. 
And, uh, and the unfortunate thing about that is many of these traditional crops, which actually provide micronutrient value and other vitamin and mineral value, have actually gone out of production or they've been lost to traditional societies. And one of the things I think research institutions, organizations like Oxfam and others are emphasizing is we've got to return to thinking about not just those five big staples, those big starchy staples, but actually also this whole range of other crops that people have been eating that they can grow locally or often ecologically appropriate. What would, what would be some of those? Crops. I mean, I imagine that the staples are wheat and barley, corn, sorghum or soy, and what, rice? Rice. Well, there's a whole range of sort of greens, leafy greens, that uh, people eat in different parts of the world. Um, here in the United States now, we've, uh, you know, we're seeing quinoa being grown, uh, being uh, consumed as a as part of baby food and in exclusive restaurants here in Berkeley and other parts of the country. Um, I lived in Peru for five years at a time when nobody in the United States had ever heard of quinoa. And quinoa is actually an interesting crop that grows in the high Andes in very poor soil, in very difficult uh, terrain, uh, and it provides one of the richest protein sources uh, that you could possibly eat. And there's a variety of other things like that that are both grains, leafy greens, and others that um, I think we need to, that farmers know about. They've always known about, um, but the research community, for a variety of reasons, hasn't had a lot of interest in. What about insects? I hear it's a high protein source, and one day we'll be having uh, insect omelets of one kind or another. Well, I've eaten, uh, you know, in, in Colombia, they actually serve uh, ants as a form of popcorn. They're really good, salted, particularly they're really good, Sech. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily going to put myself in that's a, that's a lot of ants. <laughs> <laughs> well, just imagine a big bowl of popped ants. I mean, uh, and uh, it goes down really well with beer. I, I, uh, so uh, next time you come with us to Colombia, Sedge, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll serve those up. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so part of the issue of, uh, is there enough food to feed uh, the seven billion now, nine billion later, is, uh, is what we choose to eat. I mean, part of it is, is the meat. I mean, in, in, uh, nowadays, uh, people are beginning to use more and more cuts, at least in this country, of, of, of the animals that other countries have used, where they've used everything, uh, you know, nose to tail uh, before. Uh, I mean, in large industrialized countries, I imagine we'll change our eating habits have to. Yeah, I mean, I think to reach that target, we're going to have to do a number of things. We're going to have to get a lot smarter about um, both how we, what our eating choices are, and also how we manage food and how we prepare food. And just a couple of quick things to just observe. One is something like 30 to 50 percent of the food that is produced in the world is lost on an annual basis. And in certain of the poorer parts of the country, it's as high as 50%. And it has to do with those insects that you mentioned earlier, in some cases, or um, mold and bacteria and poor storage conditions. And one of the things that's sort of being looked at now is whether we could come up with more effective storage uh, uh, approaches to storage that would actually recover that 50% or 30 to 50% loss. So that's one thing. I mean, and the other thing I think your point about eating meat, I mean, I think what uh, we've known for some time, I mean, even going back to Francis Moore LePay's books, uh, in the early 70s uh, uh, told us that I think there's something like 400 gallons of water that's required to you know, just produce one cow. And um, Oxfam's been looking recently at, you know, just if we were thinking about changing our behaviors and our eating habits, if we were to, for example, as a family of four, just cut back a, a, or eat um, a one meatless meal a week, uh, it would have an enormous impact on uh, just water usage. Uh, in terms of lessening water usage. And if you think about it, a lot of families taking on just that as kind of a commitment, it would, it would make some degree of difference. But then you have the, the cattle ranchers who say, wait a minute, you mean we're going to sell fewer heads of cattle? 
Well, I think. Well, I mean, there. I mean, there are these economic pressures all around that that, that press on on our eating habits. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we've got a, and I think Raj, I think, set up the conversation nicely in talking about the global food system. And I think that's really the conversation we've got to be having um, as, as you know, global citizens today is what does that global food system look like? How does it work? How does sort of monopoly control impact uh, the choices we make? How does it, for example, uh, how do these political forces impact the way we put together our farm bill in Washington? And what is it that we're subsidizing or not subsidizing as citizens? Where are our taxpayers going? And it might be interesting for your, you know, your listeners to know the farm bill is being debated right now in Washington, and um, many of us who are in that fight and have been in that fight as activists for a long time, you know, we've been fighting to cut subsidies that uh, are under, you know, undergirding a lot of these poor food choices and encouraging more growth of sugar or more growth of uh, uh, of cotton in the United States, which is really, you know, ridiculous given the fact that we can't be competitive in the international market and it undermines the production of cotton producers in poorer countries. Um, we've got to begin to connect the dots um, in the way that food system operates. Uh, and become political about it because in some ways a lot of the choices we make here as one of the richest, as the richest country in the world and as a country that, whose food system supports the global, the global food system uh, really have a bearing on what the, the choices other people around the world can make and what they can afford to buy. And, uh, how, do you, how do you keep people's eyes from glazing over when you mention the farm bill? Uh, you know, you know, which is filled with so much detail about you know that little uh, you know uh, exemption and this little rule and so on and so forth. And there are these paid professional lobbyists who get in and will get a little clause put in. I mean, how do we as citizens focus on that? Well, I think one of the things we've done, and actually we've, we've tried to give, I guess what one way of putting it is a human face to this issue. And one of the things we've done uh, over the last number of years is we've actually brought African farmers from West Africa to the United States. And we took them to all over the Midwest into Grange meetings where we had these wonderful pictures of these enormous corn huskers standing next to these very diminutive African uh, cotton farmers in, uh, in their African, colorful African regalia. And these were getting published in all the newspapers around the Midwest. And, and what were they talking about? They were talking about the impacts of subsidies to those U.S. farmers on the livelihoods of, of African farmers. And this was being published in papers all across the Midwest. And suddenly we, we began to see editorials popping up asking the question about, do we really need these subsidy systems? Are they really appropriate? And in many cases, I think one of the great myths for Americans to understand is that these subsidy programs are sold by the Farm Bureau and the big agribusiness lobbies as benefiting the family farm. Actually, if you rip the sort of the, the cover off this, what you discover is the subsidies are actually accelerating the consolidation of very, very large farms because the smaller farmers are not able to pay the taxes on the land that they're on. The land prices are going up, and the family farmers are being driven off the land as the consolidation process goes on. So in some sense, we're, built, we're, we're subsidizing through our tax dollars the monopolization of our rural sector. And uh, if, you really, if you really treasure the family farm, you should be going after those subsidies in the farm bill and get very political about it. And what was the effect on the, uh, on the African farmers seeing the American farms? Uh, well, many, many of them were non-literate farmers. They'd never been out of their village, to say nothing of their country and continent. And so uh, I think the thing that was most stunning to them was, were to see the machinery and the scale of the machinery, and the fact they were taken on rides on these large, these large farm equipment that's all computerized and driven with satellite technology. 
things that for them is sort of the metaphorical equivalent of a lunar shot. Um, and it, uh, it was a mind-blowing experience for them. But let me just flip that around a bit. We then took those, we took a whole large group of American farmers, those same Cornhuskers, to Africa. And we took them out to cotton fields and to soybean fields, and we had them sleep in the houses of these same people that had, they had hosted. And for them, it was a life-changing experience. And we took farmers from Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma, Nebraska and Iowa, and they came back, and they became the most, they became the most passionate spokespersons for changing the agricultural system and revising our farm bill um, that we could possibly have ever hoped for. I mean, they became rabid activists on these issues because they began to connect the dots. They began to see the relationship between what we were doing in our agricultural system and how it affected the livelihoods uh, and uh, life choices of those populations in Africa. How did that idea of that kind of cultural exchange, cultural agricultural exchange uh, develop? Well, I think, you know, Raj was talking a little bit about the fact that we live in a globalized world. And, um, and one of the things Oxfam's been grappling with for some time is how is, it, how is it that we can perhaps take advantage of the fact that we live in a globalized world? In other words, the, in some sense, the role that groups like Oxfam play is we have this enormous privilege of being an, kind of intermediating the sort of political and philanthropic impulses of the American public to, to touch the lives of people in very faraway places. And um, what we're trying to do is figure out, can we make the world seem smaller to both the African farmer and to the Nebraska farmer by bringing them together? And we can do that through technology. We can do that through you know, occasionally air travel and exchanges of this sort. And then we can actually use the mass media um, to create platforms and opportunities for public education. And a lot of this is about advancing aggressively public education and sort of hijacking the tools of the globalization process for educating people about these inequalities and, and injustices so that we can advance a kind of a food justice movement that is actually operating on a global scale. Where does uh, U.S. policy of food aid fit into this picture? Well, food aid is a very important part of particularly the work of Oxfam and many other humanitarian organizations. And the United States um, is, provides 50% of the world's food aid for the major emergencies around the world. So it's one of the major contributions we as Americans make, and we should be very proud of that. One of the problems, however, with it is that we're not doing it very efficiently or very effectively. And so, and what, what is it? What encompasses food aid? What is in it? Is it, is it uh, bags of flour or is it cash credits? What it involves is, um, so let's just say, for example, um, right now there's a famine, emergent famine in West Africa that's, gonna, that's affecting currently about 18 million people. You're not reading about it in the, in the, in the press all that much, but, but I predict you will be. And what organizations like ours are doing are mobilizing to get um, relief supplies to those populations. And when these big famines emerge, as they did in a year or so ago in Somalia, uh, what we, one of the things we have to do is get food supplies to those folks. Now, um, what the United States has in place is legislation that requires that if we're going to provide food to those populations, we have to buy it in the U.S. from U.S. producers. Not only do we have to buy it from U.S. producers, we have to sh ship it on U.S. flag ships or U.S. bottoms, as, it, as they are referred to. Um, the effect of that, however, is that, one, the food gets there much slower. Maybe sometimes it may take a month or two months to get there. And in a famine situation, 
it's a matter of hours that people you know, may need to get that kind of food. Uh, and it also is costing only 50% of, the, of your dollar is actually paying for food. The other 50% is paying um, for shipping and other costs associated with the transaction. So the argument that the food justice folks like ourselves have been making is, shouldn't we be buying food in the region in Africa near where the famine is taking place? Wouldn't that make a lot more sense? Wouldn't it be a lot more efficient? And um, this interest- while, while helping the local economies. Right, we're boosting, in other words, we're, we'd be injecting uh, capital into the local economy and helping small farmers who are in the region. They made it, you know, and one of the things we've learned in these famine situations is everywhere we've responded to a famine, there is food very often in the same country on the other side of that country or at a minimum in the na neighboring country. And you can get it there within literally 48 hours to you know, 72 hours and you can have it in a refugee camp and be feeding tens of thousands of people. As opposed to this very efficient, send it by ship, buy it from American farmers. Now the counterpart, the argument against that is, well, we're gonna undermine the American farmers. This is less than 1% of annual sales of, of American farm, you know, American farm products. So it's a very small amount. But the shippers love it because they're they're uh, they're getting a lot of shipping business. The millers love it oftentimes because they're asked to mill it, so the, the millers are getting it. And interestingly enough, NGOs who receive some of this food um, in kind are able to basically sell it in local markets monetize the value of the food and incorporate it into their budget. So interestingly enough, as Oxfam has been working on this, our adversaries are the Farm Bureau, the shippers, the millers, and other NGOs that use monetized food aid. So when you say monetized food aid, they take the aid that's been shipped, they sell it in the market, and they pocket a bit as? That's exactly, that's exactly the process. One of the things that was allowed for in the legislation was that large organizations um, that uh, engage in sort of providing food aid in humanitarian situations um, were given the privilege of monetizing that food aid, basically putting in, you know, they don't actually handle the food themselves. It's shipped um, by the U.S. government on these U.S. ships, but it's, it's earmarked for that organization. So then it's sold into the local market, the profits that are made from that, which often actually are far below the, the purchase value in the United States, so the taxpayers losing yet again. Um, so, in other words, if if it's if they, if you bought you know a pound of that for a dollar, you're only getting repaid sixty to seventy cents on average. So you're losing the taxpayers losing yet again, um, and then the NGO will get a whatever the value that's accrued into their budget. And so a lot of organizations have become somewhat hooked on this, and it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a sort of financial narcotic that uh, is not healthy for the system that we'd also like to see uh, reformed. It's a complicated uh, system in Oxfam. Is Oxfam America, Ray Offenheiser is here uh, with us today on West Coast Live uh, talking about it. Quickly, uh, Oxfam, does it come from like Oxford and famine? Is that where the origin of the name? <laughs> Well, the origin of the name comes from the fact that we were trying to, a, a group of Oxford academics and church people, Quakers and Anglicans in, in Oxford, during the war were trying to uh, get the Allied High Command to lift the shipping blockade around Greece while the Germans were actually hijacking all the food in, in Greece and fleeing into the Balkans in 1942 during the depths of the war. And uh, they created a, um, something called the Oxford Committee on Famine Relief. Um, but actually what happened was the, they, called, they made a call for food to be shipped to Oxford to be then shipped overseas to Greece and uh, some uh, anonymous gentleman in Her Majesty's post office basically decided he got sick and tired of writing Oxford Committee on Famine Relief so he, he created the brand for us. <laughs> Ray Offenheiser will be back later to talk with Raj Patel and Alice Waters uh, together. Thank you very much. Ray Offenheiser, Oxfam America. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live. 
right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.